Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius and this is the Hand Toolbook Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Have you ever bought a book and kept pushing on through it hoping that it would get better? Maybe you've been misled by a title and you bought Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, hoping to learn about Zen or motorcycle maintenance. Or like any avid reader, perhaps you're experiencing that sinking feeling about great expectations for a book that slowly fade to disillusionment, or perhaps even outright anger. Well, today's book is my book in that category. It's an autobiography of James Hopkinson, and is called The Memoirs of a Victorian Cabinet Maker. Frankly, when I was writing the script for the show, I seriously considered what I would do in a show that focuses on a book that I suggest could be summed up in the phrase, Don't buy this book. I'll start at the end, as it were, and give the rating first. 1 out of 10 in the category historical, 1 out of 10 in the category autobiographical. Maybe I'm being harsh, and perhaps it's a 2 out of 10, if you find something in the notes or texts that would support your argument as a scholar. For the rest of us, let's just stay clear. So why am I reviewing it? Well, I guess there's an element of public service announcement here. I found the book in a second-hand bookstore, and as I'm wont to do, scratching about for anything that looks interesting in the craft, the woodworking, and autobiographical sections. At $10, it looked like a steal, and I vaguely remembered the title from somewhere. At the time, I wasn't sure where, but subsequently I found the reference in the Joyner and Cabinet Maker. And I was quite excited, because the burb is encouraging. So I bought the book, and off I went home to read it. My excitement rapidly faded. James Hopkinson lived from 1819 to 1894, so it's an interesting period of the cabinet maker's tale. He's apprenticed at the age of 15 to a cabinet maker in Nottingham, England, and during and after his training he took a few trips that involved some walking and worked in a couple of different places. He was a devout member of the Baptist Church, and during his lifetime he plied his trade in places such as Preston and Liverpool and Nottingham, etc., There's some indication of the difficulties with plying the trade as he described himself variously as a joiner, a furniture broker, and for a period where he manufactured and traded other people's work, cabinet maker, upholsterer, there were quite a few ways he described himself. Later in his life he moved to Lowborough and his daughter ended up marrying the founder of a Lowborough firm of furniture makers. So perhaps there was some influence and legacy in that regard. By the time of his death in 1894, The world was in a real state of flux with the juggernaut of industrialization in full swing. From a woodworker's perspective, the story has very few points of real interest. I learned that apprentices were often forced to come up with money to learn a new skill, or they had to pay to be allowed to work on a new type of wood. This account is far from the environment that Thomas describes in the Joynan Cabinet Maker. Here's an extract from the text. And now I had to be initiated into how a lot of drunken sots had the power to obtain drink at the expense of others. You must know the master did not teach the apprentices himself, but we were left to the tender care of the men who drained all the money they could get out of us. Having cut out the wood for the table, I was told that I must pay a shilling for them to drink my health, and also that they expected my father to pay a sovereign towards a binding supper, or I should never do any good as a workman. Accordingly, I told father, who after thinking it over, decided to send the money. 
to make the men friendlier towards me and show me how to do the work. The next job I did was to make a washstand. Then I had to pay another shilling. In fact, every fresh job that I had not made one like it before, I had to pay a shilling or I should not have been allowed to make it, and no one would have dared show me. When we began to work mahogany, then rosewood, then oak, and so on, always a shilling. To every shilling got in this cruel way, every man in the shop had to put down one and a half whether he liked it or not, and I as the youngest apprentice had to fetch it for the public house and take it round beginning at the foreman first. I did not care for the drink, but I was told to take it, or I should never make a good workman. This first lot of drinks I fetched into the shop. I got into trouble with one of the workmen, a woodcarver by the name of Bowser. James then goes on to recount how, getting upset with Bowser, he eventually hid his tools. And Bowser was so upset that he came round and struck James, and James floored him. And of course, there were shillings to be paid all round for this act. This was on page 21. And a few pages later I learnt how most of the work was carried to a separate painter's shop. Not surprisingly, when James's contemporaries found out that he took his first chest of drawers past his mother because he was so proud and wanted to show her, he had to pay a shilling to his shopmates for drink. They threatened to tell the master otherwise. The master himself had four workshops around the town, and these were relatively small with six benches serving three men and three apprentices in James's shop. And as could be expected, The youngest was sweeping and tending fires for the better part of his first year, until another younger apprentice joined. Again, the journeyman he was describing seemed to be a rougher and readier sort than the types described by Thomas, or frankly by Paul Sellers for that matter, if you follow his stories about George. One day James was given a stern warning not to do any job quicker than the pace they were doing it at, because it showed them in a bad light. And to prove this point on the next job they kept him busy with dull tools, interruptions and odd jobs so he was late to finish his project. Worse still, on a veneering job, he found the veneer would not stick after he was called away on an errand and some journeyman rubbed grease on his furniture. Also I learnt about the tradition called sending to Coventry, where for a week or so no one would even talk or acknowledge the presence of the offending party. And again, to fix the problem at the end of the week, You bought a round of ale for the rest of the shop. The above vignettes and a singular mention of a holdfast around page 57 are literally all there is about woodworking up until the halfway point of the manuscript. It's interesting that when James had finished his apprenticeship, holdfasts were hit with a hammer to make a loud ringing. This was called ringing out his time as an apprentice. It's a ceremonial use of a holdfast that I'd never heard of before. And again, luckily he had a generous father who paid for his outing supper, which with drinks and food cost approximately £7. The book is not without passages of interest at a purely personal level. James describes his courtships, both failed and successful, and gives an idea about travelling around England and how it was like to be walking around the countryside in the 19th century. I enjoyed reading that he was fascinated by the winged bulls of Nineveh when he had a chance to visit the British Museum. I recall in 2001, literally one week before 9-11, I found myself in the British Museum and remember marvelling at this exact same display. Still unbelievable to me how artefacts from the dawn of history can be intact millennia later. 
There's some descriptions of his journeyman time, how James was paid for piecework, and we learn a lot about his investigations of place, about where he would set up his shop. Eventually, he converted a shop to a joiner's shop with two workbenches. He also used the adjoining shop to display and sell his work and other people's work. Those familiar with the times will remember the Luddite movement and the wage riots, and there's some mention of this along with joining cost of 7 and 6 when he moved to Liverpool. There's discussion of shop hours in summer and winter, but at this point the book's effectively finished. And, well, there's a brief mention again of holdfasts in the appendix, with a reference to Diderot's Encyclopedia, which in 1765 is among the first works to document the tool. There's 137 pages in the book in total, 110 the actual text, and 27 pages of notes and explanations. So in conclusion, Memoirs of a Victorian Cabinet Maker is 137 pages long and is written by James Hopkinson. You can find the book secondhand for around $12 as at March 2021. As I mentioned at the start, this is not a book I would recommend. Don't be intrigued by the stuff I've told you. This is really all that is interesting in the entire book. I think it pretty much covers all you'd be interested in from a craft point of view. The rest is really the life story of James, his religious participation, bits about his fishing, marriage, movements and travels. It's not terrible in that regard, but it has a misleading title. I guess if it had been simply called The Memoirs of James Hopkinson, I'd probably be less critical about this book. And I guess that's it for the review. However, I thought I'd also give you a brief update on what I'm working on and share an experience with you about heart glue. My current project is a cell phone charging stand. Um, really just a simple dovetail box as it were with some shelves in it. I'm having a bit of fun making a false back. But I think that the real interesting thing about the project is I'm using hard glue for the first time. If you haven't heard about hard glue for woodworking, you're definitely not tapped into any modern social media woodworking forums. It's a product that seems to have made a massive resurgence. And the more I read about it and its properties, the more intrigued I was. I first heard of it about a few years ago. And in essence, high glue is reversible, given enough heat and moisture. Probably not going to save you if you have some really intricate and impossible to reach joinery. But if you do a normal project and discover that you assembled a subcomponent the wrong way around, some steaming or heat and water will break the blonde and reverse the glue joint. I'd love to tell you that I've never needed this property in a glue, but it would really be lying. Glue reduces my IQ to half or less. Another property is that it has a reasonably long open time, and it's still positionable for quite a while after you've put a joint in place. Think five or so minutes that you can safely move something if you've made an error. Admittedly, this means you do need some clamps, some patience, and some planning on your glue-ups, but I think that it's a great property of glue, versus the more rapid-setting glues like epoxy or CA glue, which is going to give you some serious heartburn in those same time frames. Hard glue can also re-adhere to previous joints if you are doing furniture repairs. Or, if your masterworks are being repaired centuries from now, the glue will adhere firmly to the remnants of the old glue. It's a useful property. But I think the thing that really hooked me was that hard glue is functionally invisible to finish, which has been a big bugbear for me with tight bond. Occasionally I miss some squeeze out or get an undesired patch on the work. Hard glue promises the ability to apply almost any finish over it without having patchiness or, I guess, telltale glue reveals. So, excited about this a few years back, I bought some BTC hard glue 
and promptly left it in a cupboard for two years. Why? It's a good question. I think at heart, because gluing is a technique that falls at the tail end of a project, the point where I'm really keen to finish, I think every opportunity I had was passed up with a, well, I'll do it next time attitude. And the process seemed a little bit intimidating. And I guess ultimately, as curious as I am, there's always a bit of a fear of change. So why am I recounting this? Well, I guess I'm hoping that you can avoid the mistake I made and mix some hard glue from granules early in your career. Forget the double boiler and the complications. Go buy yourself a $10 baby bottle warmer and set it on a medium setting. The glue is easy to make. You just cover the granules with water and leave it a bit beforehand. Hide it overnight, but a few hours should also work. And you'll end up with a jelly substance that will set solid. When you're ready to use it, pop it into the baby boiler and heat it for a few minutes. After that, it's simple as applying it as usual. You can watch some YouTube videos on the process if you're worried, and you can go down the rabbit hole of rub joints. But I'd simply suggest that you just give it a go. I was surprised at how easy it was to mix and make, and how easy it was to use. If, like me, you worried about whether you did it right or not. Glue up a block of scrap. I couldn't believe how hard it was to break this joint. I eventually had to use a lump hammer and some wild swinging. And as could be expected, more wood broke from the joint than glue. This stuff is definitely pretty strong for our purposes. So if you have some in your shop that you've been avoiding, give it a go. If you cannot find the good stuff at a local store, do some searches online. I found a factory close to my house where they make them in 50 pound bags for industrial use and they were more than happy to sell me a 2 pound sampler and for a lot less than you pay in a specialised woodworking store. I'll be surprised if I'm using anything else going forward. I just cannot believe I procrastinated about this for so long. So that's it for now, woodworms. And remember, sometimes you can't find a good book to read. That's a good time to go try a new technique in the shop. And, well, who am I kidding? Keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying that you'd like me to feature on a future episode, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone who supports the show, and a shout-out this week to John Morrison from Vancouver. John, I appreciate the typo you found on the website. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. And also just thank you for an email and input for the show. It's great to have support from Patreons, but even more than that, I value encouraging emails and comments from people who enjoy the show. It's the kind of little happiness doses that make it easy for me to find the time to make the shows. So thanks to all of you who have written to me in the past, and I look forward to hearing from you, the other listeners, in the future.